You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Good evening. How are you doing? Welcome to the Sports Therapy Association podcast slash videocast because it is recorded live. If you listen to the podcast, then thank you very much. As always, if you'd be so kind as to leave a review, um, if it's going to be nice, obviously, if it's not going to be nice, then don't worry, just kind of jog on. That's fine. And five stars is always uh, welcomed as well. It just helps us appear higher in Google um, search results. That's all we ask you to do that for, um, which is really important because it means the good word of our guests gets out to more people. That's what it's all about. So, yeah, it's recorded live on YouTube. Um, if you are listening to the podcast and you'd like to join us, then it's simple. You just go along to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel on a Tuesday at eight o'clock. And we're there. We've been there every Tuesday for a hundred and. 15 weeks now um, the other advantage of joining us live is you can ask our amazing guests questions directly and when you do ask a question then I can bring you up onto the screen so it's kind of a quite a clever way of networking as well you can stick your clinic logo in your Facebook profile your YouTube profile picture and it's a good way of showing yourself off and mixing with like-minded um, whether you're a sports therapist sports massage therapist you can be physios osteos we get everybody in here um, it is a multidisciplinary podcast and video cast. So, for example, people are joining our live lounge now, which is why I'm saying hello to Lindsay Penn. Good to see you first through the doors. Thanks for joining us. See what a beautiful logo. LJP Sports Therapy makes me want to call you up and book in. So that's what you can do with this show. Come along. Uh, Catherine Reimer um, is here as well. Hey, Catherine. Nice to see you. Hope you're really well. And other people coming in. So there you go. You can join us live. You don't have to. I mean, we really appreciate you listening to the podcast, um, but it may be just what you need to help. I did have an email, actually, from a couple of new members to the STA and people are thinking about joining um, who said, oh, how can I meet? How can I network? Who do, can I meet? Come along here Tuesday night. Oh, here we go. People are flooding through now. Nikki Mansfield, how are you doing? Thanks for coming along. Good evening, she says. Uh, very punctual start tonight, Matt. Gold staff year. Well, it's been 115 weeks. Um, uh, thank you. I'm getting better, aren't I? Thank you, Nikki. Ivan Ward is here. Hey, Ivan Ward and Claire Walker is here and so on. Fantastic. We've got people. Uh, love to see you. Thank you very much. Right. So where are we? Um, we're in the final week now of our focus on the knee. OK, so those of you who aren't aware, what I decided to do for this season of the Sports Therapy Association podcast was do kind of stretch a topic for a month. So that if you do miss an episode and then you sort of kind of somebody tells you about it, you know, you've still got a few more episodes to catch up on that topic. So we started a month ago with um, the foot and ankle. We had four fantastic guests on for that. And you can listen to all of those, as always, on your favorite podcast app or go and watch the video on uh, YouTube. Or if you like, you can go along to the sta.co.uk where you'll find all the show notes as well and links to everything that's talked about in the episode. Um, this month, we the focus has been on the knee, and um, it's been amazing as well. Let me just quickly run through as Tonight is the last one. Let me just change. You can't see this on the screen, but I'm bringing up some lovely images. So we started off with Angela Jackson. Um, that was uh, talking about the adolescent knee. That was at the beginning of the month. Um, wonderful episode. And I say this of all my guests, but such a great educator. If you're not following Angela Jackson on Twitter, then you should be, really. And it's, again, it's just it just ticks all my boxes because it is truly multidisciplinary. Okay. It's not a physio just talking to physios. It's not kind of an osteo surrounding themselves with osteos. It's something for everybody. And it's kind of embraces that whole multidisciplinary approach. So I would definitely check out um, Angela Jackson's uh, episode. 
um, particularly obviously if you're working with adolescents um, some great tips real life tips in there and obviously links to the websites for courses and further cpd should that be useful to you last week um we had the wonderful claire robertson slash patella because i've had so many people saying is she called patella or robertson um i know it's confusing i spent maybe three years not quite sure i'm afraid to ask online it's claire patella everywhere but that's not her real surname it's not even her maiden name as far as i know it's just it's just what happened it was a sensible social media um logo so it's claire robertson but if you do want to go to the website then it is clairepatella.com and i'm i do encourage you to do so obviously i encourage you to do for all guests but something that claire does which we talked about last week as well as everything else to do with patellofemoral pain and fat pad syndrome was also if you subscribe for free to the mailing list and then you'll receive claire's three best suggested papers every quarter and that's really really cool because for a lot of sports massage therapists and sports therapists, it's like, oh, what research do I trust? What do I what what can I read and feel confident in? And and this is a lovely way to receive every quarter three papers um, kind of digested by Claire. And it's a lovely way to getting into research. Um, so I would suggest you do that. OK, it's a, it's it's mail worth receiving. So, yeah, Claire is now up on the podcast. If you want to listen to that episode, um, distinguishing between patellofemoral pain. In fact, looking at the whole term patellofemoral pain and realise it is an umbrella term and it will vary so much uh, depending on the individual in front of you and distinguishing it from fat pad syndrome. There's some absolute clinical gold in there for therapists, which you can put into use Monday morning or any morning, Wednesday morning, really, because this is on Tuesday night. So um, definitely suggest that you check that out. And it continues in part three. Um, I'm very, very excited um, to bring you. I think this is brilliant. I've never actually managed to say this in 114 episodes, but we've got a, um, um, an orthopedic surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon on here. And we'll probably talk about hierarchy and kind of putting people on pedestals, but I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed we've got a surgeon here and I think you guys are actually being spoiled. Um, but I'm so happy that the Sports Therapy Association podcast is the um, is the conduit that is giving you a chance to spend an hour with uh, Jonathan Bell, who's a consul, um, uh, orthopedic knee, specialist in knee surgery and uh, working in Wimbledon clinics. He's also, as I kind of um, found out last week, rather embarrassingly, um, his second claim to fame, or maybe first, depending who you speak to, is he's the husband of Claire Robertson, um, which is really interesting. I'm going to talk about that because you've got surgeon married to physio, both specialising in knees, but that's something we'll talk about and see whether that's affected both of their views and giving them kind of a wider sphere of knowledge or something. So... Um, really excited to bring Jonathan up. If you have any questions, as always, type them away. I've told Jonathan that if he sees an interesting question um, when he's here, that he can stop me in my tracks and say, oh, Glenn Murphy's had an interesting question. Can we address that? Uh, do use this, people, if you're live. Anything you want to talk, anything you want to share, any doubts you have, it's the truth tree here. What is typed in this box will just be seen by anyone who downloads the podcast or watches the video. So it's not really secret, but... Feel free here. This is where you ask your questions because you've got amazing guests to ask them to. Right. I don't think there's anything else to say. Um, no. Um, at the end, I'll let you know what's coming up in September. But for now, um, let me, with great excitement, bring up Jonathan Bell. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hi Matt. Hey, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to be here. Nice to All see right. a few people have turned up. Yeah, that's always that's always nice. It's always it? reassuring when you see one name turn up. <laughs> 
No, you've got the crowd have come in, so that's fantastic. I appreciate all people have come joining us live. I'm sure you've got other things to do on a Tuesday night. Um, but um, Gary Benson here as well is the founder of the STA. So I think I advised a few people to come along tonight if you had questions, if you're a new member. So Gary is your person to talk to, Gary Benson there. Um, hope you're well, Gary. Right, so Jonathan, um, so so I hope I didn't kind of big you up too much there. And while well, you're a surgeon, you couldn't have a bigger head if you tried, could you? Let's face it. That's true. <laughs> That's absolutely true. You're at the top of the... Goes, sadly, it goes with the territory. But we're lucky to have you because you, you, I mean, as far as I can see, you've got Wimbledon clinics and, and I've listened to you on other podcasts and things. And that was kind of your path was because you wanted to adopt, it seemed, as I've, I've heard you say, a, a more of a multidisciplinary approach. You wanted to break down those kind of, kind of separation and get people, give people the chance to work together. Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, I've been doing this about 20 odd years now and uh, sadly, in the first 10 years of my career, I saw sort of multidisciplinary approaches in teams sort of systematically dismantled in the NHS. And it was hugely frustrating because they're an amazingly effective way of getting stuff done. And, you know, just before I left the NHS, I'd helped set up a really, really big um, advanced physio practice uh, back in 2004, and this was before they were really mainstream, and it was hugely successful. And I got a lot of flack for it from my colleagues, and I just thought, oh, for God's sake. But, you know, I've always been passionate about the, uh, an overused word, but genuinely uh, passionate about working with other special specialists. And, you know, for me to get a good result, I have to work with other people who are good and I have to have a good relationship with them. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't go well for me. You know, it's, I, I get a little bit irritated with the surgeons who think it's all about the surgery. It's, it's you know, it's the, it's the anaesthetist, it's the prep, it's the, it's the people who help the patient through their post-op um, recovery, uh, which is not always just physiotherapists. It can be massage therapists. And I think as we were talking just before we started, you know, people people don't really want a relationship with their surgeon. They want to get you done and dusted out of the way as quickly as possible, and they quite often forget your name very quickly. But when you're when you're someone's um, massage therapist, sports massage therapist, the likelihood is is you've got a very long term relationship with that patient, and you might see them very frequently. And you know, you've got to pass the time, so you often get to know each other quite well, and. So, you know, they they can form a very important part of the, the sort of recovery process because patients will go back to see those people they're familiar and comfortable with during those times of recovery or whether it be from injury or surgery. So I think it, and I set the clinic up so that we had um, people, people, around, people around me who would make me look good, really. <laughs> no, I'm joking, but but it's but it is it is important because um you know if I don't have good non-operative input, whether it be from a sports doc or from a physiotherapist um, or other therapists, you know I, I it's it's all then just about the the, the cutting to use a uh, you know a euphemism. But and I've I've always tried to pride myself on not being 
being a surgeon who can operate but not always the first to operate or, or you know i i want to see if people will get better without surgery because i think that's that's the honest thing to do um and just to sort of plow in with surgery as the first offering is not it's 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 unethical you know i, I don't i don't i don't sort of subscribe to that sorry that was a very long-winded answer no it's brilliant no, no, that's fantastic. I think it gives, gives listeners a, a good idea of where you're coming from. And it's actually really nice to listen to because I think the kind of traditional hierarchy of surgeons at the top, often coming from kind of quite a, a, a family of surgeons and very proud and probably kind of earning quite a lot of money and stuff, that's that's kind of been put there in kind of like a Downton Abbey type way. But it's, it is it is hopefully becoming something of the past thanks to people like yourselves. And it's and it's important as well because I think it can work the other way where other professionals don't communicate with surgeons because I think they're all going to be kind of snotty toffs who just want to open people up and don't want to do anything else and all this. If you've only got a hammer and a nail, that's all you're going to do, sort of thing. And that's yeah. dangerous as well because that's just going to build walls. And then, and in some cases, it's not true. The surgeon actually, you've just proven, doesn't always necessarily want to open people up, you know, and they're very careful not to. So. Yeah, it's good to hear. It's important that, you know, I try and learn a little bit. You know, you were telling me a little bit about um, the training and the, you know, the, the, the background of uh, people who go through sports massage therapy. And I'll be honest, I don't know as much as I could about sports massage therapy. So I'm really quite happy to be educated about it as well, because only if I take the trouble to learn a little bit about what you guys do, can I work more effectively with you and you know hopefully that hopefully we'll cover some stuff on this call that you'll find useful um because you know it, it is a big even knee is quite a big field definitely and becky carroll has just said very refreshing to hear i hope that's a common i hope people listen to the podcast appreciate that as well it's it is very refreshing to hear it, it kind of opens doors um, for us as well and helps us all kind of believe we're yeah. on more of the same page so so yeah, okay. Well, we we entitled this "Do I Need Do I Need Knee Surgery," um, which is obviously a little bit of kind of it's just I did it on purpose actually when I was thinking about it because that's what a patient is going to ask. A patient is not going to say, "Do I need an arthroscopy?" You know, they're not going to say that. If you if, they, if you look at the Google, it's going to be "Do I need knee surgery?" So that kind of reminds us that we can get over besotted with the language as yeah. well. But we're going to narrow it down, as I kind of explained in the in the in the notes and the adverts, to arthroscopy, um, and the history of it, when it's kind of how things have changed, maybe, um, whether the evidence is pushing in the right direction or whether evidence only is pushing us in the wrong direction, that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and and yeah, the audience, I imagine, and people listening live this is where you can come into it if you are what you know about arthroscopy if you know what it's supposed to be used for if you know whether over the last few years it's being used less for certain things and chuck it down there in the comments it'd be interesting to see um but i think we should start off really with um just a definition of what arthroscopy is for people who aren't quite sure yeah so i mean arthroscopy basically means look in the joint and and that's really all it means now, of course, it's used as an abbreviation for look in the joint and do something, whether it be giving something a polish or a trim or whatever, or a ligament reconstruction. Um, so it's it's a tool really to look in the joint, and it's um, you know it's, it's been around for a while now. It's sort of developed in the seventies, fairly fairly basic back then. 
the instrumentation is now extraordinarily sophisticated and minute you know you they they can't really you can't really miniaturize anything anymore it's you know it's got down to as small as you can get we've got 4k cameras uh it's it's hugely sophisticated kit um but like any tool it can be used well or it can be used poorly and i think that uh, i i don't know many many people on the call may be aware that there's been quite a pushback against arthroscopy certainly if you venture anywhere near twitter you'll see the sort of twitty the twitter hangry the angries um out there sort of accusing surgeons of being uh sort of uh, murderers or something equivalent yes yeah, it's probably the word they use yeah and um and i think that and i think that there is there is clearly and has historically been clearly overuse slash abuse of arthroscopy um and i think the first the first reason that occurs is that the person who's making the decision to carry out an arthroscopy isn't well informed and there are actually very very few knee specialists in the uk pure knee specialists so in my practice is 90 the high 90 percent knees uh, but there are very, very few, less than 100 people like me in the UK. Mm-hmm. Most people do a bit of this and a bit of that. And even a lot of people who would call themselves knee surgeons are either just arthroplasty surgeons. So that means they're doing hip and knee replacement. Uh, and they'll all do a bit of arthroscopy. So actually, probably the vast majority of arthroscopies in the UK get done by non-specialists. and. It's not so much that they wouldn't be capable of doing the operation, but I think the decision-making to get there can sometimes be, dare I say it, uh, simplistic in its thinking. And that there, there is, again, for those of you on Twitter, you know, a huge push against structuralism. Mm-hmm. And... And by that, I mean, you know, so you've got the the, the lot who say, well, look, if you go and trim a meniscus, the, why is the pain going to go? Because pain is a more holistic sort of thing that's happening in the brain. And and I think that and I think, you know, while I understand while I understand pain models, I think you need to be a little bit careful not to go the, the whole way and say everything can be treated with a sort of pain woo woo. Uh, and that will uh, offend, I'm afraid. But but there can be a little bit of that. And I think there is a role for arthroscopy, but probably not as much as there was. And I think that arthroscopy, particularly to trim the meniscus, starts to become controversial after about the age of 35, mm-hmm. certainly 45. And the older you get the much less likely should arthroscopy be being offered. And that's in part because many of those knees will have associated osteoarthritis, again, at the risk of being accused of a structuralist, in other words, worn joint surfaces. Mm-hmm. And osteoarthritis is not just about worn joint surfaces. It's a sort of disease of the whole joint. But but when you start to see patients with worn joint surfaces, you probably miss the boat for arthroscopy. 
and that mm-hmm. there are certain specific examples where arthroscopy can still be useful to trim the meniscus. But you've got to be pretty careful not to do it on everybody. Um, and data I was aware of, uh, UK-wide data um, in the private sector, showed that for some people over the age of 50, if you walk through some surgeon's door, you were about 90% chance of getting an arthroscopy. And for me, it was about 20, 30%. Now, either I'm wrong or they're wrong, but we both can't be right. That's true. And, you know, and I, and may, maybe I'm more conservative than some, but, you know, that is a huge, huge range. And so I think arthroscopy, so I think unfortunately surgeons have used and abused arthroscopy to the point where payers have gone, whoa, hang on a minute. And that now there is a pushback. And part of the difficulty is, is that not all, let's stick with the meniscus for the moment because it's a sort of easy structure to think about. Not all meniscal tears are the same. If you look at a meniscal tear in someone over the age of 35, certainly 45, that meniscal tear is probably the first hint that that patient's going to get osteoarthritis or degenerative osteoarthritis of the knee. And that the the meniscal tear might be that index event. So you may not actually influence whether the patient gets arthritis down the line by doing an arthroscopy or otherwise. So certainly it's not a long-term solution, but that's quite different to a 20-year-old with a bucket handle tear, which is where they basically a pulled the meniscus out of its sort of bedding. And if you can put it back into place, actually you can have that meniscus still functioning quite normally 10 years down the line. So there is a, there's a very age-specific difference between meniscal tears. And I think that the danger is to lump all meniscal tears into one. Very interesting. And, and I'm sure this will, I mean, it. I think, and, and again, people in the room correct me, but I think definitely all level four um, sports massage therapists will be seeing patients and they'll be doing tests for um, uh, potential meniscal issues. You'll be doing a kind of grinding a pepper point, pepper pot test. I can't remember what that was called now because some guy gave his name to it, but I just called it yeah, pepper grinding right. now. That's the one. So yeah. there'll be some of that and you'll be doing other things, maybe getting to stand on one leg and twist their body and stuff. But I'm really interested about it. I don't want to give people the impression that if they send somebody to the GP, then the GP is going to, kind of send them to a consultant and then the consultant is like you say 90% chance is going to suggest surgery so how do we start breaking down that kind of sequence of events so that the patient is educated and starts being able to make a more informed decision rather than just following what the professionals tell them so let's see what you can do look I mean it's a pretty simple it's a pretty simple job in some respects uh, you know, what knee, knee surgery, because there's only really four types of diagnosis. There's really patellofemoral pain and all those things that ride with it, whether it be fat pad, ITBS, uh, you know, tendinopathy. Then you've got the sort of arthritis patients. Of course, the majority of those are osteoarthritis. 
and to some extent you can guess that because of their age. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the meniscus patients, which we've just been talking about, and then you've got injury. And for for me, it could be more ligament than it will be fracture, but obviously there are fractures in there as well. Now, someone who's had a high-speed fall or fallen off something and they can't wait there, you know, they need to go to A&E. That's, that's, that's pretty pretty easy. I think for the patient who just walked through the door with a sort of a slightly vague knee pain, if you're a betting man or a betting woman, you just put your money on patellofemoral pain every time because about six or seven out of ten patients have got patellofemoral pain mm-hmm. or, or one of the variants of it. And I, I think, I mean, I'm sure Claire covered this last time, but the easiest way to diagnose patellofemoral pain is it, it can be anywhere and you'll exacerbate it with a single leg squat. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, you can get a bit more sophisticated with that, the diagnosis. But if someone complains of pain at the front, the back, the side, down the shin, uh, and they get pain, it's exacerbated by a lunge or a single leg squat, it, you're, you're probably going to be pretty close to getting it right with, with um, patellofemoral pain. Meniscal um, pathology. So there's obviously, obviously we're talking about medial and lateral, so inside, outside of the knee. Lateral meniscal tears are really difficult to diagnose unless there's a bump at the joint line, which is a cyst, in which case then they're really easy to diagnose. But most people who are tender over the lateral joint line, that tenderness is actually patellofemoral pain. Uh, pain so lateral facet patella pain so that's pain coming from the outer half of the kneecap tends to make you tender over the lateral or outer side of the knee and so a lot of people get confused and think well this must be a lateral meniscus tear also lateral meniscus tears are about 1 to 20 or 1 to 10 uh, compared to medial meniscus tears and medial meniscus tears are Usually the patient will diagnose it for you, to be honest, because they they have a they have pinpoint tenderness and they'll point to their knee and they'll say, see, I get my knee high enough. They'll say, it's here, doc. And it's just, it's not at the front. It's just towards the back behind the medial collateral. And if you're consistently tender there, and I don't think you need to know anything about Murray's tests or Thessaly mm-hmm. tests or grind tests, if they're tender there, and it's persistent, and it started with a bit of swelling in the knee and a um, bit of night discomfort, which went after a month, probably it's a meniscal tear. Mm -hmm. So, and and then ligament injuries, of course, they will have had to have been a history of some form of twisting injury, usually accompanied by swelling or bruising. So it's, the difficulty is, is that, not all the patients present with a sort of textbook presentation. And I think that's where someone not seeing a lot of knees and diagnosing them can find themselves getting a little bit out of their depth. But I think you can always have a stab at it. And if something doesn't get better after, let's say, a month, you know, you've got to say, maybe I should get a bit of help here either with the treatment or the diagnosis, but most importantly, the diagnosis. The number of people who come to me having spent fortunes on treatments when they've not actually spent anything on diagnosis is 
it's a shame, and I guess that some of them must have got better. Otherwise, they, you know, I, you know, otherwise people wouldn't do this. But I think that you can quite easily get sucked down the track of just spending money on treatment without actually thinking, what am I treating? And there will, of course, be conditions that um, your therapists uh, will treat where you know it doesn't really matter if there's a specific diagnosis because the treatment at the end of the day is treating say the symptom of whatever it is calf muscle pain or 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 something something that that can be improved with hands-on therapy and that's fine but i think when something's not getting better did you never you never get or you rarely get criticized for asking for help too early and i think and i think that's maybe where perhaps your therapists who are working in clinics alongside clinicians that do diagnosis may be at a slight advantage because they can go next door and ask. But that's the whole point of multidisciplinary team working is that you get this sort of blending across the, the specialties and that, you know, your therapist can just pull the physio or the sports doc or whoever it is aside and just say, oh, you know, do you think I should or what should I do here or could you take a look at this patient with me and you know and that is the actually that that is the pleasure of working in a MDT team so um so I think um so I, th- I think the difficulty is n- probably not to get really bogged down with being ex- exactly what is the diagnosis but just knowing when to call it a day mm-hmm. and and I think, you know, a month is a good yard, maybe six weeks. Uh, if the pain is severe, you know, you know, you probably should ask for help a bit sooner. I think anybody who can't wait there, you should ask sooner. I think night pain can be a, a red flag, yellow flag. Certainly it's a flag of some color. You know, people are getting night pain um, just because night pain can also be very debilitating for patients and they generally want help you know i want something done about this even if it's you know should i take a non-steroidal you know an ibuprofen tablet so i think that's that's um so you know significant injury significant bruising any altered sensation um something that's not getting better or progressing and you don't always have to ask an orthopedic surgeon or a GP or a doctor for help. You, know, you can ask your, as I said, your colleagues who maybe do more diagnostics, like, say, the mm. physio with a lot of experience. I was going to ask that, actually, if you've kind of you've you've backed up what my next question was going to be. You've you obviously work and it's good that you work closely with physiotherapists. A, a particularly like a level three or level four sports massage therapist um first of all not supposed to diagnose because we're not healthcare professionals and mm. um, referring on to a physio if you work by yourself one of the f- pieces of feedback i get is how there seems to be a lot of variance amongst physiotherapists it's not a case of just send it to a physio and they'll be able to help sometimes and the more educated it seems that sports massage therapists are getting the more they're realizing that there is variance in all disciplines Um, and you might just send it to a physio who straight away suggests right let's do a scan to see what it is 
Whereas they're hearing from another angle, no, you never do a scan to see what it is. You do a scan to check whether it is what you think it is, that sort of thing. So yeah, absolutely. is there still a lot of variance within physiotherapy? Is it getting better? And why do you think that variance is there? Um, I'll sort of answer the question backwards. I mean, we've, 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 maybe many of us have had a builder in or... I don't know a gardener or or some say or or somebody to, who's done some work for you, uh, and it doesn't really matter what. Or you know, there's two bakeries in the village. There's there's always going to be one that's better than the other, and and it's no different among surgeons. It's no different amongst lawyers. It's no different amongst physiotherapists, and uh, I'm sure there's a, a variance within sports massage therapy as well. And this is where I think, you know, you need to spend some time building your relationships. And if you're a sports massage therapist, you're probably looking for relationships within a five to 10 mile radius. And you need to sound out the physios who are going to be good at diagnostics, not. Um, over refer themselves not send everyone for a scan not slap the ultrasound machine on and really you can only work that out by i suppose trying to trying to be in front of them you know meet them um talk to their patients um patients are usually reasonably um au fait with you know what to to and but of course there are some patients who just want to be electrotherapied or, or whatever but but I, I think you've got to find maybe one or two people locally who could be your go-to people now there's always the anxiety will I lose my patient to them well you've got to use someone with integrity who realizes that when you're they're being asked for help it's not their role to nick your patient off you um uh, you know, and it's the same for me with a physiotherapist. Uh, you know, if, a, if, I, if, a, if I've got a patient comes to me and they say, oh, maybe I'll just have my physio at the hospital, I'm going, well, hang on a minute. You know, you've got a physio who's two minutes from your door. They know you. They've worked with you before. Actually, you know, you don't need to come to the hospital for your physio because actually you've got a very good physio locally. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that there are, you know, so there are physios that never refer to me and they refer to other surgeons. And, and I, you know, you're sort of thinking, oh, I wonder why they do that. Maybe I'm not good enough. But but I think it depends a little bit on what they want out of the relationship. So, you know, if the physio referring to another surgeon wants lots and lots of surgical post-op patients back, well, guess where they're going to send them? They're not going to send them to me. Mm-hmm in a sentence of the guy who does the 90% operating. So so I think to some extent you have to do your own research and that's difficult if you move around a lot but if you're based in an area where you you know you get to know the local physios or maybe go and do a session there once a week mm-hmm. um and again I think it comes down to this you know if you work in a practice where you're working alongside other specialties you soon work out who's who's got integrity and who's who's got a good reputation and who's always full and who the patients always speak highly of but that's you know that's that's your homework to do you know that's what everybody here is um 
uh, sh- should be doing is to build relationships. Yeah, I think it's really important. And and it's easy to forget. I grew up and, and learned my trade in a multidisciplinary clinic. There was kind of 10 of us, including podiatrists and osteopaths, and people came and went. So it was wonderful. It was such a good learning environment. But it, sports massage therapy in particular and sports therapy can be one person in a room, in a gym, no communication, no kind of peer sharing or education at all. So I think one of the things I'm interested to hear people in the in the live lounge tonight whether you have managed to establish relationships with physios or osteos or people and if you did kind of have to pick and choose it a little bit and kind of kiss a few frogs before you found somebody who works for you because it's not always easy and one thing i will kind of say from personal experience is you can't necessarily make your judgment based on what the patient says to you because i've had patients saying oh yeah the physio gave me a few stretching exercises i'm like why do they give you stretching exercises for like, I don't know, insertion or Achilles tendinopathy or something? Really? Then, And even if you say they gave you a stretching exercise, oh, yeah. And really, they're just using the word stretching when it was a loading exercise. It could have been a strength, like over a step heel raise or something. But patients change the words, don't they? And they kind of, they either forget half of it or they just kind of give their own language. So, yeah, you have to meet the person in, don't you? Have a little chat with them, have a coffee, yeah. go to the practice. I think if you can find ways of doing that, that's really helpful. And then if you and look, if you are a single-handed practitioner, um, you know you are a little bit vulnerable to being in the dark a little bit. And you know, and, that, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't work as a single-handed practitioner, but if you could get even one evening a week at a practice or where there are other people around it keeps you it keeps you keen you know when you know you've got a little when you've got peer review mm. it keeps you sharp um or certainly sharper than if there aren't eyes on you that's not to say that you know everybody's really trying to catch you out but i think it is it is quite it is quite good to do that and if if there are any of you there who are wondering about whether they should take that sort of one evening a week or that sort of slightly antisocial Saturday morning session at your local multidisciplinary clinic, I would do it because I think it will pay back dividends. Even if you do it for a while, what you'll work out is that it's a good thing to occasionally do that. You don't have to do all your work like that. Um so Alex asked if there was a protocol for what patients should try before surgery is given. I and mean, I think, Alex, the, the thing is, is that I, I think all patients should go through non-operative treatment before, uh, unless, you know, unless there is an emer- genuine emergency. All patients should be given the opportunity to try non-operative treatment, even if it's just to prove it doesn't work. Um, now, there are some situations where, you know, let's say you fractured your patella and you can't straight leg raise. Well, you know, that that's a bit, that's a tricky one because the non-operative treatment might involve putting you in plaster for two, three months. So you've got to balance what the, the non-operative treatment's going to do for you because, you know, not all non-operative treatments are benign. So I think, so I, I, I yes, I, I, I don't think there's a specific protocol, but I do think patients should exhaust non-operative treatment before they go down the route of surgery. Um, and Leslie is saying, I bonded with my physio over Greg. Layman. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So, okay, so Leslie's championing, the, you know, just what I was talking about. Thank you, Leslie, for endorsing my view. Um, so, 
So I think uh, I, I think it, it's it's a really really good thing to do. I don't know if you can get Leslie on and get her to say a bit more about it, but it's definitely something to look at. And to some extent, you've got to be a little bit bold. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, uh, I mean, you might not believe, but I'm I, I'm an introvert at heart, and so I you know I don't particularly find that sort of approach really comfortable. But to some extent, you've just got to say, well, hang on a minute, you know, this is important. And more often than not, people will be quite polite and pleasant and welcoming of you showing some interest. And as long as you're not an, an annoyance uh, in the way you approach it. But it's, it's yeah, I, 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 would, I would endorse that. That's great, Leslie. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, so Leslie, for those who oh, listen to the podcast, Leslie says, I bonded with my physio over Greg Lehman workbook. I now do one a day, one day a week in the clinic and love it. Yes, you may bond over some similar research or something, or maybe yeah. somebody like Greg Lehman, the sort of information he puts out there, if you bond over that, yeah. then great. Yeah, yeah. Good advice. I like that. Um, yeah, good. Let's move on. Right, so osteoarthritis, you said that once upon a time um, – arthroscopy was kind of like oh this is great let's you've got stuff going on here. let's clean it all out makes perfect sense yeah. why why does people start pulling away from that what is the potential is it just because it doesn't work it's been shown it doesn't work or is there yeah I mean, going down the line? look when you when you have a new tool appear that's as powerful as arthroscopy people mm-hmm. are going to try and find as many ways as using it as they can and you can understand why, because this is a new, potentially exciting way of managing things in a less invasive way. And uh, a surgeon I knew who was who's long retired now, he said, you know, actually, I don't need to do as many knee replacements because I'm giving all of these knees a bit of a clean and a buff. And whilst patients will very frequently get some improvement in their knee for a while after a, a, an arthroscopy and a debridement, a clean-out, let's mm-hmm. say. If you scrutinise the results and look at them critically, actually not only do you find that they don't get relief for that long, in other words, the condition comes back, but you actually get some that are worse. Mm-hmm. And... So I think you know you need to be careful if you've got a procedure that's potentially going to make people worse and then precipitate the need for knee replacement because that's not a good thing to do for someone. And and look, when twenty years ago, I would have I would have been in the camp of people who were debriding menisci and and taking back little flaps of joint surface cartilage that was sticking up and because that's what I was taught to do. Um, but actually, as you get better, you know, and surgeons need to work hardest at being good non-operative doctors. So as I got a bit better at my non-operative care, so I found myself not needing to go down the route of arthroscopy. Um, and as I say, I think the pendulum's gone a little bit too far and there's a little bit too much vitriol about it. Um, but, but you know, I agree on the whole, it's not the way to manage osteoarthritis now. Part of our difficulty is, is that we don't have a great offering for patients who've got moderate 
moderately troublesome osteoarthritis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we had better options, we would, I would willingly use them, but we don't. Yeah. And, you know, my, my clientele is, my, my patient uh, clientele is, a, we're, I'm fortunate enough, it's a fairly affluent part of the country. Many of these people are fit and well into their 60s and 70s and have got the disposable income to, you know, play sports and tennis clubs and golf clubs and things like that. And quite frankly, they don't really accept, I'm sorry, mate, I can't help you. Mm-hmm. So they, they're in, they're looking for something. And it's really difficult when you say, oh, you know, I'm not sure I've got much. I mean, I think now people are aware that arthroscopy is not the answer. So you don't get so many people asking for arthroscopy as we used to. Um, but, you know, then that takes us down that whole, opens that whole can of worms about PRP and hyaluronic acid injections, mm. which you know, they're not, they don't give amazing results. They probably do help a bit, but they cost a lot. Mm. So, you know, if you've got the sort of disposable income where that's not that important, and that is going to be a very small proportion of society, they will they will do it even for a marginal gain. Do I wish I had something a little bit more effective than PRP and hyaluronic acid to inject in the knee? Sure, I do. I would be very happy to stop doing those injections if I had something more effective, even if it was a, a tablet I could, could prescribe. So it's it's not... Sometimes I think in the sort of world of academia, everything is very black and white. Whereas, as, as I'm sure everybody on this call knows that the world is not black and white. The real world is not black and white. It is not like the textbooks. It's not like the controlled trial of this against that. And the real world is really sort of quite messy. And mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, real world decisions don't always um, aren't always exactly as it says it should be in the randomised controlled trial. So, so yeah, it's a difficult one. Very important point. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that, I think you mentioned earlier, that a meniscal tear can be a risk factor for developing osteoarthritis. And it used to be a case of where they were both done at the same time, wasn't it? One of the great things about an arthroscopy for arthritis mm. is you'd find a meniscal tear or some kind yeah. of thing there and you yeah. saw it at the same time. So um, why is that? Why why does a meniscal tear, and, and is it a particular age group where it can be a precursor for potentially developing um, osteoarthritis? Well, again, at the risk of being accused of a pure structuralist, but, you know, but let's just approach it from that point of view for the time being. Mm. If you've got osteoarthritis of your knee, you've got changes in the synovium, you've got changes in the synovial fluid, you've got changes in the meniscus and the bone and the ligaments and the nerve endings. Um, So, there is, so it is, it is a very complex collection of, of, of things under the sort of osteoarthritis umbrella. But I think when you see someone who has torn a meniscus, let's say a 50-year-old who's torn their meniscus, and you then look a little bit more carefully, you think, oh, okay, there is just a little bit of hint that there's starting to be some degenerative change affecting their chondral 
surfaces, i.e. the cartilage that lines their knee. And then you look a little bit more carefully and you say, okay, they've got a bit of excess fluid in their knee. That means they've got synovitis. Well, that means in turn you know that probably that synovial fluid is not quite the same as in a healthy knee. And some of the, let's call them chemicals, in, in there are um, pro-inflammatory. In other words, they're driving the problem. So the meniscal tear might be the presenting factor. The meniscus splits, the pain level increases a little bit, and then they go along and that you, you say, okay, well, you've had a meniscal tear. And the best example of this is that you sometimes see someone with mild wear, they get a tear, and then they get a stress fracture of the bone because of the overload and the loss of the, the shock-absorbing capability of the meniscus. And that sequence is definite because I followed it. Grumbling knee, meniscus looks as though it might be a little bit frayed. Knee suddenly intensely worse three months later, re-MRI scanned them, meniscal root tear, stress fracture. So I'm absolutely convinced that that path does occur sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and... And and I think that the the meniscus is is softening, it's fraying, it's stretching, um, and it just starts to fail. And that early failure of the meniscus is probably a sign that that's the way the knee is going. So it's not necessarily that the meniscal tear is the cause of okay. the osteoarthritis. It's possibly that the meniscal tears early in the process. And so we can get misled into thinking, oh, I'll trim that meniscus, but the knee will be the same in five to 10 years' time if you did nothing. But sometimes the knee is really awful for about, you know, it's a month, six months to a year, and you can alter that course. Um, it's a bit like sort of taking the disc out for, the, um, you know, disc prolapse. It doesn't necessarily alter how the back is in two years, but it can make that that it can make them more comfortable on the way. Mm -hmm. oh, great. Fantastic. Thomas Roth has come with a question, which I think is connected to this. Good to see you again, Thomas. Thanks for joining us. That's like three weeks in a row now. Yeah. Um, Thomas Roth says, uh, can you talk of the difference between root and body tear in regards to osteoarthritis? Yeah. So, so um, Thomas, there's a, the, the meniscus, as you probably know, is, is, a, is the shape of a new moon. It's like a sort of segment of orange. And the you we tend to divide into thirds, posterior third at the back, middle third, anterior third. Tears don't tend to occur in the anterior third. Most tears are in the posterior third, and um, radiologists will use lots of different nomenclature because you can get tears in different planes. You can get horizontal tears, you can get vertical tears, you can get radial tears. You can get parrot beak tears. You can get all sorts of different tears. And then a root tear is one that occurs right round at the back, just where the meniscus is sticking down onto the tibia. So they're all just variations on how the tear looks. How relevant that is to treatment, not always very relevant. But meniscal root tears by implication, when you say someone's got a meniscal root tear, you're always thinking, and should that be repaired? Because they, you, you tend to repair the root tears in younger patients. But in, for me, in, in knees that are already degenerative, 
I, I'm not sure how much is gained from repairing the root tears, although there are some surgeons who think it's terribly important that you repair all these degenerate root tears. But I think to some extent you've probably, the, the, you know, the horse is bolted and you're trying to shut the gate by re repairing these tears because then they'll also do maybe a little osteotomy as well at the same time. And you think, well, hang on a minute. That, that that's quite a big uh, uh that's quite a big thing for patients to buy into um when their their knee might potentially settle down so i think um so i think that i wouldn't get too hung up on the different types of tear um so nick nikki is just saying something about gel injected uh so I think when people refer to gel injections nikki they're probably talking about hyaluronic acid that goes under various trade names like Ostanil, Synvisc, etc. Uh, and then PRP is blood that's spun, and depending whose kit you use to spin it, they may try and change the name. So um, some people say, well, if you use our kit, we call this, but at the end of the day, it's PRP, which is PRP is basically spun blood in a centrifuge, separates it like layers in milk. And you just take the top layer off, which is the sort of yellow plasma. So that's the water, the salts, the proteins and the platelets. And that goes back into the knee. Uh, and then you leave the cells behind. And then there's always an argument. Does it make a difference if you leave the white cells or put the white cells back in the knee? So, you know, they're, they're, but, but PRP is not an easy to standardize treatment because I can take PRP out of you three weeks later do it again and it might have completely different makeup very good hope that helps you um nikki feel free to ask another question follow that up if you've got a follow-up question what about you mentioned like in the case or the example you gave you're talking about a 50 year old um with a meniscal tear how do things change when maybe it's a 30 year old and they have had maybe they've got a case history where there has been some kind of injury maybe during sport or something whether there's an operation on it, you mentioned it, I think early in some cases, then then surgery can be the best route. Um, can you elaborate on that? So it's, 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 um, I missed the thread there. Say that again. So with a, with an early, let's talk about a thirty year old or twenty five year old yeah. who's got yeah. meniscal tears. Yeah. Um, did you say earlier on that in some cases um, surgery might be the best part? Oh, to take? Okay. Yeah. My apologies. I sort of <laughs> I was sort of going down a different route. So if you get a say, if you're a 35 and above, your meniscus isn't normal. It's softened in the middle uh, through um, uh, degenerative change in the meniscus. So in the 35 year old, 45 year old and above, the meniscus is already showing some signs of softening. But in the younger patients, let's say a 25-year-old, that meniscus is hard, rubbery, it's healthy. Um, and if you get a tear in that, there are certain patterns of tear. And this is where the pattern of tear is important, Thomas. Certain patterns of tear can be repaired. And that's really what we're wanting to try and do in a young patient. So, you know, I see meniscal tears in 13-year-olds. And you really don't want to take those meniscus menisci out if you can avoid it. Uh, fortunately, the younger you are, the more likely are you to get a, a pattern of tear that's repairable. 
Basically, a repairable tear is one that occurs near the periphery of the meniscus, so closer to the surface, because that's where the blood supply is. Blood supply doesn't penetrate into the meniscus very deeply unless you're a teenager. And um, once that, if you tear your meniscus in a bit that doesn't have blood supply, it's very, very difficult to get it to heal and probably not worth it if you're, you know, if you've got, say, a radial tear, so straight across the meniscus. The only radial tears I will repair or have a go at is in a teenager. And I've had a little bit of success with that. But those are difficult tears to get a good result with. But if you, you know, if you had a radial tear in a 45 year old, you're wasting your time trying to repair that. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Reminded that at 35, we are veterans, aren't we? Um, whether you're a sports <laughs> person or not. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but hey, that's fine. It's natural. Degeneration's okay. It's just like wrinkles around yeah. your eyes. You don't go to the doctor for that, do you? Yeah. Exactly. Glinting off my head. No, 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 it's fine. We can I can I can modify that later on when I put the video out. I can give you whatever you like on top. Yeah. yeah. Um okay, brilliant. Um great information there. Becky um is interested in patients that you see. She wonders in today's society, are you seeing more private patients actively asking for surgery in comparison to say 20 years ago, as in the quick fix approach? Um, I don't think so. If anything, I suspect it's probably a little bit less. Because I think that, I think that the, or, or certainly around me, the British public are probably a bit better informed about their healthcare options. You know, and that, to put that bluntly, I think that's the sort of Google factor. Right. You, know, you know, everybody's an expert these days. Uh, and there are patient forums and there are Facebook groups and, uh, and so patients can sometimes be um, hugely informed, um, not necessarily always with the right stuff, but they can be hugely informed about their condition. And so I think I, I think patients are always, they're always keen and more keen, I think, these days to explore what are the non-operative options. Mm. That's good to hear. Is that your experience, Becky, or let us know? Yeah, so you're going to go... So I don't think people, and, and, you know, and, and patient, you do get patients who see surgery as a quick fix. Often those patients need um, some guidance on what are the best options for them and that there isn't anything as such as a quick fix. You know, an ACL reconstruction is a nine to 12 month rehab program that's not a quick fix i can do an acl reconstruction in an hour or just under an hour but yeah that's a quick operation but it's a nine to twelve month commitment and if if the patient doesn't think they if gives me the hint that they're not going to do the rehab i tell them not to or i i I won't do the surgery very interesting yeah um, Becky, let me know whether you've seen a difference. You've been in the in the trade for a long time. Let me know whether yeah. you're thinking that people are more yeah. informed these days. I must admit, when I looked up Google, I put in, for example, um, arthroscopy is it recommended for osteoarthritis? It was all kind of came up pretty good. Most of the results were kind of giving a you know links to how you know 
things have changed and how once upon a time it was this. It all seems quite good out there. Um, Nikki Mansfield, no, we've done that already. Let's have a little shoot down. Okay. Claire Walker is here. Claire Walker, let's read out your question. Oh, um, yeah. What advice would you give to a client with meniscus tear over 45 years who is an athlete runner? Yeah, so... So, Claire, this is a this question spot on because, of course, these we see a lot of these, certain and maybe a little bit older even as well, up to sort of early fifties. And for a lot of those patients, a meniscus tear will settle down over two or three months, and they'll go back running. And I probably do a few more steroid injections than I used to. During COVID, we couldn't operate. So I did a lot more steroid injections to see if I could help people. And actually, I think some people found that they got better a bit quicker. Um, It possibly doesn't make a difference to the outcome in two or three years, but they got better a bit quicker, got back to rehab a bit quicker, got back to sport a bit quicker. So I do more steroid injections than I used to. And so your your athlete runner might just get plain old ordinary non-op. So give it some time, take an anti-inflammatory, do a strength program because you'll have lost some condition and gradually get back to it. They might get a steroid injection to facilitate it. Um, there are going to be maybe a little less in the 45-year-old, but certainly in the 55-year-olds, some patients where that meniscus tear is a pretty catastrophic event for that knee because it was heading in that direction. You know, the joint surfaces are already moderately worn. The meniscus is hanging in there and then it splits. Now they've got a painful knee and the pain is probably coming from the bone. That's a difficult situation because I don't like, and in fact, I make a point about saying to patients, look, it's not not really my role to tell you that you need to give up running, but we need to. If running is really important to you, we may need to. Ex- you may need to accept you're going to have to modify frequency, distance, surface. You know, can you switch to maybe instead of running three times a week, do two on the bike and maybe run on a treadmill or grass, or and we'll see what the knee will tolerate. And I sort of I will often talk to patients about their knee having a threshold that they've got to stay under, otherwise the knee is going to kick off. And unfortunately, what's happened to your knee has lowered the threshold. And now, you know, going for a run is kicking things off, whereas swimming and cycling and whatever may keep you under the threshold. So maybe the balance needs to be in favour of lower impact sport. And um, uh, Matt, you'll probably remember this um as as I do, that you know, it was all about marathons 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. And, and I used to have to say to people, look, I really think it might be worth trying some cycling as well. You know, you obviously like endurance. Of course, now we've got triathlon and it's, you know, it really took off uh, around, probably around the Olympics. But, but um, you know, much easier now to persuade a patient to get on a bike as well as run. Whereas it used to be really difficult when they were all sort of hard, <laughs> you know what runners can be like. They're very single-minded that running's their thing. Um, but 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 so but that's a it's a good question, Claire, because they can be quite difficult patients to manage. Not because the patient's difficult, but the problem is difficult. 
And the problem that they've got suddenly comes to light when they get the meniscus tear and they think, oh, you know, this has been cooking for a while. Great question, Claire. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think moving over from marathon to triathlon, I can't remember it was, well, I can't remember the name of the presenter who did a video on my Davina, somebody. She used to do Big Brother, I think. I can't remember her name. Davina Oh, was it Davina McCall? Yeah, there you go. I was going to feel proud if you didn't know her either, but you just went straight in there, Davina McCall. No, I said, yeah. <laughs> she did a video, yeah, and it saved. I remember the particular year I was treating a lot of runners who were just in that six to seven hour marathon finish time, and they weren't happy. They were coming in afterwards, mm. and the most common thing I heard was, I don't really deserve a medal. And I was like, Jesus, you put yourself through all of this training. You finished it. You crossed the finish line. Yeah. Most people were sweeping up and overtaking yeah. it, which is always embarrassing. Yeah. And, and they didn't even feel good afterwards. But fortunately, yeah. Davina came out, one of the few times that a celebrity did actually make people's lives better. And suddenly it opened up this new avenue of why are you going to pound away for seven hours when all you want to do is get that thrill of competing and go and do some cycling. Go. Your body's much more happy doing that. But I yeah. like the way it, it reminds me of, of Claire. Claire said this last week of when you've got an individual in front of you, it's it's realizing what makes that individual tick and giving yeah. them options. OK, it's yeah. perfectly fine. Your body's got. I love that threshold idea. You know, this is kicking above the threshold, but do something else and your threshold will be up here and you can be a champion. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's really nice yeah. to hear that. Um, rather than just ripping it away from underneath their feet and saying your body's screwed up, you're not going to do any more. Yeah, you know? I took over from someone who spent the whole of his career telling people to give up running because <laughs> it was dangerous. And I, and what was evident when his patients came to see me after he'd retired was that actually, you know, a lot of the patients didn't find that particularly helpful advice. No, and they just pursued it anyway. Whereas my, I, I feel as if I can just help them a little bit with how they shape their, you know, their future sport, even if it's to sort of say, look, start thinking about something, because we may find in a year or two, you, you, you know, the, the knee doesn't like running three times a week. Mm. What are you, what will you have explored between now and then that will, you know, allow you to sort of explore stuff when there isn't a panic on? The Definitely. panic comes, so the patient who's a runner and they do it to manage their mental health, Those, they are very distraught patients, mm -hmm. very, very distraught patients um, because they, they've suddenly lost their ability to manage their mental health mm -hmm. um, and, and they feel their anxiety or their, their mood or their, their depression slip and coming back. And that's quite, um, they feel quite obviously quite scared by that. Definitely. Well, look, time has once again crept up on us. It's nine oh seven. I think. Um, I always Becky... talk too much. No, not at all. No, God for God, no, this is amazing. And and as Becky says here up on the screen, I put it up. Very interesting to get the perspective of a surgeon. Thank you. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, it's lovely to hear all this coming from a surgeon. I uh, hopefully for the people listening to it who join us live and people listening to the podcast, it has been refreshing to hear a surgeon actually talking about individuals rather than just slabs of meat. And it's not the case that they're all just got queuing up ready to kind of with scalpel in hand, ready to open people up. There are actually surgeons like Jonathan here who, are, who realize it's not the you know solution to everything and can well, make things very, worse. So that's very kind of you to say, but actually it's, it's really nice to come and, you know, talk to uh, an audience that I don't normally talk to. Um, 
Uh, you know, and I'm grateful for the questions, grateful for the good questions, actually, really good questions. And, you know, some of those are really absolutely on the money. These are these are tricky patients. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's it's not always the surgery that's tricky. <laughs> Sometimes managing what the patient wants is mm. tricky. Um, Definitely. It's not necessarily uh, easily achievable. Definitely. Wise words. I'm Gary Benson, founder of the STA. I said I really enjoyed this evening's chat. Thank you for sharing your time and expertise with us, Jonathan. Um, and um, Nikki Mansfield has said in a fantastically passionate, warm way. What an absolutely wonderful point of view to hear. I love the way you're speaking. Oh, it's great. Thank, you. Um, thank you, Jonathan. I really appreciate you spending time with us. Wonderful. Oh, it's, um, a, it's an absolute, look, it's an absolute pleasure. And if any, and uh, if anyone wants to get in touch, you can look me up. Um, uh, I think there is a politician called Jonathan Bell, but that's not me. Uh, <laughs> who comes out higher in the Google rankings sometimes. Not for long, not after tonight. <laughs> that place you goodbye. can get in touch with me if you want on, um, uh, on th- through the clinic, through Wimbledon Clinics. And uh, I do I do frequent Twitter as at Bell Knee Surgeon, um, sometimes poking fun at Claire Patella. Uh, I know that's not her real name. Um, but uh yeah get me and claire on something and we'll try and out talk each other so ivan if you wanted to get in touch by all means drop me an email at um uh, at wimbledon clinics very happy to hear from you um we'll make sure links to all the social media um particularly twitter and also wimbledon clinics is in the show notes um so that's fantastic i would recommend following jonathan on twitter if not if you don't if you don't use twitter then don't start using twitter because of me that i'd hate that i couldn't have that in my conscience but if you are on twitter and you're like me trying to narrow down who you follow and who you don't then i think you do a lot worse than following jonathan um, because it's just refreshing it's nice i think you've got a taste tonight of jonathan's way of explaining things and, and that's continued on twitter so I recommend um, you follow Jonathan there. Leslie Campbell said, great chats with Claire last week and this week. Thanks. Yes. And um, Catherine Reimer says, it was a very interesting discussion. Thanks, Jonathan, Matt. Right. I don't want to keep you any longer than I said. I'm already 10 minutes over time. So thank you, Jonathan, for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's a Um, pleasure. And um, that just leaves me to let you know, people who are listening on the podcast and people in the live lounge, that next week, we're in September, so this will be September, Tuesday, the 6th. And we're doing our um, regular first Tuesday of the month, Have Your Say. So it'll be a chance. We'll have Gary will be in the house, uh, myself, probably a few regional reps will be popping in. Maybe uh, Dr. Fiona Higgs will pop in and we'll have a little open chat um, about um, what we've listened to with regards to focus on the knee um, in august we'll also let you know what's coming up in september as well um there'll be chats about therapy um expo as well happening um in november so we'll be talking about the speakers we've got along for that um so yeah particularly if you're interested in hearing about what's going on at the sta then that'll be next week on youtube as always tuesday at eight o'clock um and if you are interested in the sta then as always feel free to send an email to either gary at the sta.co.uk or matt at the sta.co.uk um, or just check out the website the sta.co.uk 
yeah um because all links to regional reps um, and the different people involved in looking after you are there um, there's loads of people who can help you and so reach out that's it people thanks so much for joining us once again thank you to jonathan bell for a fantastic hour pleasure happy to come back if you want me oh i wouldn't say that too quickly um, but yeah I'll take up <laughs> I, the offer I, 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 I like talking <laughs> no i don't believe it right. get me in care on we know we won't stop between us you said that two times now. I got at the yeah. moment. I'm just thinking of let's rekindle. Uh... We should do it. We should come on together because it's quite. We have quite a lot of fun, um, and uh, she's quite easy to wind up. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you realise we're still recording, and she's probably listening to this. Actually, she's in the lounge next door to you. So there you go. No, that sounds great. A glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that invitation. Yeah, I'll definitely up for having you both. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Bye, people. Thanks yeah. for joining us. Take care it's of each other. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.